Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13 tonight. This is really the downfall uh, part of David's story. Remember last time he had gone into Bathsheba. They uh, had a child by that uh, adulterous relationship. He murdered her husband and then married Bathsheba. And everything was going fairly smoothly, smoothly for him as far as nobody finding out about it until Nathan came along. But during that sort of torturous time it was for him, as he described it in Psalm 32, he thought that he had escaped the judgment uh, that should have come to him because under the law, he should have died. Two capital crimes, the crime of adultery and the crime of murder, both spoken of against rather by the Lord in the Decalogue. And in the law of Moses, the penalty for those acts was stoning. He knew that, but he thought that he had covered everything pretty well. The only ones that could have possibly known or maybe at least some of the servants of David might have suspected something like this. Joab, who was away in a campaign, was at least complicit in the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And he must have been thinking, something's going on here. But it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came to David, almost a year after the incidents, that Nathan told David the story of a very rich man and his neighbor. And the neighbor had a sheep, a ewe lamb, precious little thing. The neighbor was poor. And that ewe lamb stayed in that neighbor's house and he treated it like his own child. The rich man had a visitor who came and instead of taking one of his flock, he took that neighbor's only ewe lamb and sacrificed it, or slaughtered it rather, for a meal for his guest. When Nathan told David that story, David's response was immediate. That man should die. And also, be obedient to the command of the law, which was to restore fourfold that which he had taken. And it was at that point that Nathan said, you, David, are the man. Well, that ended David's secret encounter with Bathsheba. It became rather public at that point. And I'm glad that it's been made public to all of us because it really does speak well of the Bible not covering the sins of its leaders that in many cases the uh, Gentile nations would never, ever have spoken so badly toward one of their patriarchal leaders, as really has been the case here in Second Samuel. So it tells us really something about the truth of God's word when you realize that God doesn't cover up the sins of the saints of God. He exposes those sins so that everyone can know that we all are sinners and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this story was indeed a very necessary story for us to see that David definitely was not a perfect man. And in the judgment that God did bring to David, Nathan clarified something of great importance. Nathan had said, you will not die because of these things. God's mercy is at play here. But instead of the punishment of death, David was told that he would suffer the consequences of his sin through the terrible events that would take place later on in his life. Nathan went on to say that the sword will never depart from his house. There was going to be terrible tragedies, and the son that was born, or would be born, uh, of that encounter with Bathsheba was going to die. But another act of mercy was indicated in the last chapter we read, chapter 12, where it said that David and Bathsheba did indeed bear another son, and his name was 
named Solomon by David, which means peace. And God, in his mercy, allowed that to take place. And God is going to use Solomon. In fact, God saw in Solomon something of his character that would be revealed that is important. And God decided to name this baby that was born of Bathsheba and David, who they named Solomon, God named him Jedidiah. And that means the beloved of the Lord. So that ended chapter 12. And now we're going to begin in chapter 13 to see some of the results of David's sin as they continue to unfold before us in these latter chapters of 2 Samuel. So chapter 31, verse uh, chapter 13, rather, verse 1, begins with this statement. After this, after all of these things that we just discussed, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now, Amnon is the oldest son of David. He's the first born of the many sons that David had, from the many wives that David had, and his birth, being the first, entitled him to the right to the patriarchal throne of David. But as you've noted, I'm sure, in the Old Testament Scriptures, whenever somebody was born first, did not guarantee that individual's right to the inheritance. And that would be the case with this individual as well. His is the life and death story of the first tragedy after Bathsheba and David had had their little fling. So Amnon is again the firstborn. Then there was Chiliab, the secondborn of another wife of David. But nothing more has been known about Chiliab, so the assumption is that he died early on in the history of the family of David, but there's no mention of his name ever again since the time that he was mentioned as the second child of David when he was running from Saul in the wilderness. But Absalom is the third son of David, and his mother is Maaka, and she is the daughter of the king of Jeshur. Now that plays into the story, so we want you to remember that. Absalom's mother was a princess of another kingdom. She was married to David, and she bore her first child, Absalom. And she also had a daughter whose name was Tamar. And Tamar, it tells us, was a lovely woman. Remember, Bathsheba was very beautiful, according to the Word of God, and that's the only time when that phrase, very beautiful, was ever used, when it was used on behalf of Bathsheba. But here it tells us that Tamar also was a very lovely, a fair-looking or beautiful young woman. And she and Absalom are brother and sister. So that's important to note. David had these children and others. But these are the children that are going to be focused on in this chapter and the few chapters following. Now Amnon, it says at the latter part of verse 1, loved Tamar. Unfortunately, the Hebrew language doesn't really distinguish very well the difference between love and lust. And we'll find that this love for Tamar was not a love that is based upon affection, endearment, but rather simply lust. There's no other explanation. And so as we continue, keep that in mind, Amnon really didn't love her as we would describe, I love my wife. I love peanut butter, but I don't love peanut butter in the same way that I love my wife, obviously. I hope you understand that. But chapter 13, verse 2, continues the story, and it says, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So he knew the law, he knew the limitations. The law had said, thou shalt not commit any kind of ancestral relationship with a brother 
or sister in a family, even if the sister or brother are from a different mother or father, as was the case here. And still the punishment would have been death if they had done so. It was against the law of Moses, as found in the book of Deuteronomy. It was improper, and he knew it, but he couldn't get his mind off of her. Remember that the sons of David dined every night with David, and they had this feast along with Mephibosheth, who was one of Saul's descendants, Jonathan's son. And so it would have been commonplace for Amnon to see Tamar on a fairly regular basis. Not only there, but because they were members of the same family under the headship of David, they probably spent a great deal of time in their events that they participated in, and she would have been invited along with all the other children to be a part of those events. So Amnon had been watching her. He had been looking at her, dreaming about her, thinking about her, desiring her, because she was very, very good looking. But it says in verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. He's not really a friend. Actually, he is a cousin, as we will find out. But the definition of friendship is really tainted here. If I had friends like this friend of Amnon, I would be very, very suspicious and concerned. But apparently they got along very well. They had similar ideas, perhaps, or ways of looking at things. And Jonadab recognized something going on in Amnon that he kind of thought maybe ought to be addressed. But it tells us again, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So they were cousins. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And that word crafty is very similar to the phrase used of Satan in the book of Genesis chapter 3, where it says Satan was cunning among all of the creatures of the God that, that God created. And here is a similar phrase, very crafty indeed. And he said to him, verse 4, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day by day? Or the idea is you're obviously not only losing weight, but perhaps he noticed the countenance was changing in Amnon. He wasn't as happy as he used to be. He wasn't as easygoing. as He was kind of fretful. He was obviously troubled by something. And it apparently affected him physically. So he says, why are you being, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. So John Dad said to him, Look, this is what you have to do. Lie down on your bed and pretend, pretend to be ill. So that's not already a good start. And then when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So he's devising a scheme, really, to entice Tamar to come into his house for his purpose, although it will be hidden from her and also from anybody else in the family, at least initially. It's especially hidden from David, but he has to ask David's permission for this to happen. So verse 6 says, Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come, or Tamar, and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. He never, ever noticed that there was a problem here. It went right over his head. He wasn't observant. Perhaps he might have noticed that Amnon was, like the friend of Amnon, a little thinner than he used to be and wondered why. And maybe he could have inquired. Maybe he could have had a heart-to-heart talk with Amnon, but that doesn't seem to be the case. But in any case, David approves the idea of having Tamar come 
to bake the cakes. It seemed innocent enough, so why not? Their brother and sister. And as far as David knew, they got along well together. And verse 8 tells us, So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And then she took flour and kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. He's talking to his servants now, those who were waiting on him, and leaving now him and Tamar alone. And then Amnon said, verse 10, to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Bad, bad mistake on her part. But again, she's a trusting young lady. Her brother is sick, or at least she thought so. So she was willing to do anything that he was asking of her at least in this regard, to feed him, to help him to get better. He had something very, very different in mind. Verse 10 says, Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took her by the hand, he took hold of her, and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She was pleading with him, please don't do this terribly, terribly wrong thing. You will suffer for it. I will suffer for it. The name of David and all of his family will suffer for it. This is a foolish thing. Just ask David for my hand and he'll give you to me, or to you, give me to you rather, in marriage. That would be the right thing to do if you want to lay with me. That's the only right way. Even though marrying your half-sister was not really completely uh, forbidden in the law, certainly lying with your sister or half-sister before marriage definitely was. So in verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Like father, like son, I suppose. These are terrible things that are taking place. There's no excuse for these kinds of sins. It really doesn't make us men look very good, does it, ladies? Does it, men? Thankfully, not all men are like this. But this was the case with Ab, um, Amnon and David, and it's going to have repercussions, exponential repercussions. In verse 15, it tells us, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Complete opposite of what he had had for emotion with regard to Tamar, his beautiful sister. Once he had succeeded in arriving at that which he had desired for so long, she was just another thing to cast aside. In fact, the word thing is exactly what he thought of her. It tells us Amnon hated her exceedingly so that the hatred which he hated her with was greater than the love which with, with which he had loved her. And Amnon, Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. And so she said, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, not my sister. In fact, the word woman you may notice in your translation is italicized. That means it's not in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew doesn't have the word woman. It just says, put this thing out. He just doesn't even consider to be a person of any value whatsoever, a thing to be, to be disposed of. Put this thing out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now, she had on a robe of many colors, 
for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And take note in verse 20. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He was suspicious, perhaps, for a long time of his brother Amnon, and he didn't even have to ask what happened. He apparently knew what had happened, and he apparently knew who it was that did this heinous thing to his lovely sister. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. He's trying to comfort Tamar. He doesn't want her to feel guilty over this. He's going to tell her and the rest of the family that Amnon is a real problem for the family. But he's not going to want her to think she's responsible for it. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. He kept her in his house for apparently as long as one or the other was living. There's no other mention after this of Absalom's sister Tamar. We don't know if she was impregnated by him. We can assume that she probably was. But the word of God says nothing more of her. How sad. Terrible tragedy. Terrible sin. You can be sure your sin will find you out. Absalom knew right away that it was Amnon who had done this. And then he tells, apparently, David. In verse 21 it says, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon neither good nor bad from that point on. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. It tells us in verse 21 again, David was very angry. But apparently, that's all that happened. There was no evidence here or anywhere else that David took any action against Amnon. In fact, we'll see in verse 23 the reason for that assumption. It tells us it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, so Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now, two years have passed, and nothing has taken place with regard to the punishment that Absalom was expecting to take place against his brother Amnon. So he's already now beginning to take things into his own hands. He's developing a scheme that he's going to play out very successfully, unfortunately. And again, it adds to the terrible terrible consequences of David's sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. For it tells us in verse 24, Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant, speaking of himself, has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Every time they sheared their sheep, it was a celebratory type of event, and they had great feasts and times of fellowship during the shearing time. And Absalom is inviting King David and the rest of the family along to participate in this exciting, wonderful, festive occasion. He has a plan. He's unconvinced, certain that David's not going to really agree to this. And he was right. It tells us in verse 20, uh, 25, But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. So David's saying, look, you should, you should go ahead. Um, it's nice of you to ask, but we don't want to be a burden on you. I give you my blessing. Go and enjoy the feast and have a wonderful time. Then Absalom said, verse 26, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Well, why should he go with you? Do you suppose perhaps that David is beginning to wonder why is he choosing to ask for Amnon alone and not all the rest of the brothers and or sisters? So David says, 
after he had urged him, verse 27 says, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So every one of the kings, not just Amnon, but every one of the king's sons are now going to this feast uh, of the shear, uh, shearing of the sheep. Verse 28 says, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So this was a plot. He had already designed this event. Right from the very beginning, his intent was to kill Amnon after making him drunk with wine at this sheep-shearing expedition. Verse 29 says, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. So it became very, very uh, emotional. Everybody was terrified. They all got on their mules and went back to Jerusalem as quickly as they could. They all escaped, except for Amnon, of course. And verse 30 says, And it came to pass, while they were on their way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So a messenger apparently was sent, and apparently given misinformation. Not all the sons were killed, only Amnon, but he was thinking, or was told, perhaps, by the servants of Absalom that all the king's sons had been killed. Perhaps that was its part of the strategy. So in verse 31, the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. This was a terrible time, heart-wrenching time for David and his household. Then Jonadab, you remember him, the real friend of Amnon? Well, he came along and said, let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. How do he know that? Perhaps he was part of the scheme. Perhaps he knew that that was a plan of Absalom. He may have confided with Jonadab, or Jonadab may have been part of the feast, the festivities, and come back more quickly than the brothers did and told David the story as it really had truly unfolded. Let not my lord, he says again in verse 32, suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Think about it. Jonadab apparently knew this plot had been formulated by Absalom right from the very beginning. If they only had shared the truth with David. So much of these events could have been circumvented, could have been somehow repaired, and reconciliation could have been much more easily accomplished. But that wasn't to be. So in verse 34, Well, let me read verse 33. I guess that's where I should be next. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And then Absalom fled. He knew he couldn't stay. In the Mosaic Law, there was a conditional statement made by Moses that implied that anyone who killed somebody unintentionally, could escape to one of the six cities of refuge and find safety there as long as the priest in that city continued to live. He would be protected. The cities of refuge applied to only those who killed somebody without intending to do so. It doesn't apply to Absalom. So Absalom couldn't escape to one of the cities of refuge. So instead, he escapes, but he goes elsewhere. It tells us again, verse 34, Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said so, it is. 
So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also, the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Jeshur. And David mourned for his son every day. Remember, Absalom was the son of Maacah, and Maacah was the daughter of the king of Geshur. So he's actually gone to his grandfather's house to find protection from him outside of Israel and still with family, but not David's. Verse 38 says, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. Now Amnon was killed by Absalom two years after Amnon had taken Tamar. Three years now in exile. And it tells us in verse 39, King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. For three years, King David, it says, longed to go to Absalom, but he couldn't apparently bring himself to do so. Sometimes... A bitter heart unfortunately causes us to not do the things that we really ought to do. And that apparently is the case here with regard to David. He wanted to, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 14, Joab, noticing these things, begins now to take some things into his own hands to help out both Amnon and David in this reconciliation process that really needed to happen. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 14, So Joab the son of Zariah perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So apparently Joab knows this woman. He trusts her. He believes that she can help him to deliver David a message that will help to convince David to allow Absalom to return to Jerusalem and receive forgiveness. That's his goal. And he tells this woman to say these words. And now the woman, verse 4, goes to the king, it tells us, and she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them. But one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he has killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Now you remember the inheritance laws that the property of the father would go to the children, the sons born to him. And in this case, this woman is giving David a story that the father died and one of the sons killed another of the sons and now the family wants to execute him in a a revenge killing, which was also part of the Mosaic law, because of his having murdered his brother. And she's giving David this story. Now the reason she's come to David is because of the fact that David, as a king, also sat as judge over the people of Israel in sort of what would be our Supreme Court kind of justice system. He was the final authority in their justice system. And so she's able to come to the king to present her case. And we'll find another story later on in Solomon's day where another couple of women come to Solomon with a request. And so it's the precedent is already in the scriptures that that is something that the people of God can expect to be able to do, to come before the king 
with very, very critically important decisions that need to be made that the king can make for them on behalf of those who bring their appeal to him. Now, this woman is a very clever woman, and Joab is a very clever man, and they've conspired together to manufacture this story. And it is very, very similar, by the way, to Nathan's story, remember, that we shared earlier. It's just a story. There's no truth in it. But she's playing the part very, very well, very convincingly. So the king says in verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. So the king here is basically telling the woman that he's agreeing to help her. But she needs to go further than that. It's a good start, but she's got to get more from David in order for the story to have its full impact. And so it tells us in verse 9, And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. So he's going to ask her, or she's going to ask him rather, to protect her. And she's willing to do that. He says in verse 10, So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. So she sought the Lord, the king, for protection of her own self and he's granting that as well. Then in verse 11, she adds more. It says, Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. That's what she and Joab were hoping to accomplish. To protect her son, the dictate of the king, Justice, which deserves the punishment of the guilty, has been overridden by mercy of the king. Verse 13 says, So the woman said, Verse 12 says, Therefore the woman said, Please let your maid's servant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And this is the last word that she's going to speak, now comes the you are the man moment in the story. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. You're willing to allow my son in the story that I've told you, and she doesn't call it a story here, but it will be known to be a story later, in this that I have told you about my son, you've allowed my son to be forgiven of his having killed his brother. You've got a son who has done the same thing. Why aren't you willing to do the same for your son? You see the story, how it played out, fit exactly as they intended it to fit with regard to David and his son Absalom. And she continues in verse 14 and says, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. These are really, really wonderful words of wisdom this woman has spoken. Take note in verse 14, she says, We will surely die. Every one of us will die. And it would be a shame if we die before we actually have an opportunity or take the opportunity to be reconciled with somebody with whom we are at odds. This is such a critically important thing for David to realize, but it also is a very critically important thing for every one of us to realize. We should never, ever, ever allow problems between those who are associated with us in any way where we have had some kind of a dispute that causes a separation from that person to continue without any effort at all to bring reconciliation. Paul tells us that we are to make peace as much as we are able with everyone. And that is the case with you and I as well as with David. And again, she says, water being spilled on the ground, can't be gathered up again. That's an impossibility. 
When you die, you can't make up for the lost time, for those lost relationships. You've got to do it now while you both are living, in other words. And then she says in the latter part of that verse, something even more profound. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. That's a gospel message. That's what he did for you and for me. We were banished from his presence because of sin. But he has made a way. He devised a means, and that is the cross. The devising of that means by which we were kept from being continually banished from God is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's because of that which he has provided that he will not banish us or expel us from himself. That's a beautiful statement that she's made. Now in verse 15 it tells us, Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Oh, she's buttering him up here now. She's recognizing the fact that he is committed to doing what she has requested. And she's identified the fact that he should be doing what he has said should be done for her son, should also be done for his son, Absalom. Then the king said, verse 18, to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. Now David has begun to think, There's going to be something going on here. As all of this has unfolded, as, as she finished this wonderful uh, compliment that she has given to him, and as she has driven home the purpose of her story, apparently David now is beginning to realize, I've been set up. And so he's thinking, who could have convinced this woman to have brought this story to me in such a fashion to get this result? And of course, he makes the right conclusion. So the king said again in verse 19, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. Yes, he is complicit, and he is the designer of all of this that you have just experienced. But in verse 20 she says, It was to bring about this change of affairs that your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And so the king said to Joab, apparently Joab was there listening all along to this exchange between the woman and the king. The king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Take note of the fact that he's saying, the young man Absalom, not my son, but bring back the young man so it's a partial forgiveness. It's the best that David at this point can do. But it's interesting that he is now willing to allow Absalom to come out from exile back to Jerusalem to his own home. There's a condition. Verse 22 says, Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. I'm not ready for that. So Absalom did return to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So after three years of exile, Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, but he still hasn't been able to stand in the presence of his father, the king. He wants to change that. And all of this time, David has been very sorrowful over the fact that Absalom has been away. But he's still not yet ready 
to make full restitution or to allow Absalom actually to make full restitution and for the forgiveness that Absalom deserves or wants to be extended by David, who's not yet willing to do so. So now in all Israel, verse 25, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. That's about four or five pounds of hair. Now, there's hardly any reason that anybody would really suspect that this verse is there for a reason. But it is. We won't find that reason until much later in the study of Second Samuel. But it's something that we will come back to when we get to that point. Just know that his hair was very thick, very heavy, and he cut it once a year. And now we go on to the next portion that is of relevance to our study tonight. Verse 27 says, To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was, you guessed it, Tamar. He named his daughter after his sister. I'm not sure if that implies, it may, that Tamar had died. But his sister carries a name. His daughter, rather, carries the name of Tamar. She was a beautiful woman, just like her aunt Tamar was. And verse 28 says, And Absalom dealt, or dwelt rather two full years in Jerusalem, but he did not see the king's face. So he was in exile for three years, and now two years in Jerusalem, still not able to see his father. And it's been a terrible time for both of them. Very much more so, perhaps, for Absalom, because he's frustrated. He's disillusioned. And he wants to do something very, very badly, but it cannot be done. He realizes Abnon is gone. And apparently the second son is also gone, Chiliab. So it puts him, being the third son, in a very, very likely place of inheriting the throne of David. However, we've got this separation that cannot be resolved because David is so far unwilling. For two years, Absalom is struggling with this. And you can see, like it was with Amnon, his anger over the situation continuing and his bitterness continuing to grow. And that will become a real, real problem. But during this two-year period, after that time of being in Jerusalem, unable to see his father, it tells us that Absalom decided to take another step into his own hands. Verse 29 says, Therefore Absalom sent to for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he still would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has body there. Go and harvest it for him. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. There, that'll get his attention. That's apparently the, the, the reason for this crazy idea that he's come up with. Joab isn't answering my calls, so I'm going to make it so that he comes to me, one way or the other. So he sets his field on fire, and Joab did, in fact, take note of it. Verse 31 says, Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered and said, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, tell me, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him. He got his attention, and Joab kindly did what Absalom asked him. We're not given the conversation between Joab and David, but it was successful. And it tells us in the latter part of verse 33, and he went and called for Absalom, David did, 
And he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And then the king kissed Absalom. Face to face, broken hearts are beginning to mend, at least one of them. It may be too little, too late for Absalom. But here we find David finally becoming willing to accept Absalom as his son once again. It's a step in the right direction, David. You've done well. And God will receive that forgiveness as a sign that you are willing to do the things that He wants you to do. So may it be for each one of us if we have to forgive anyone. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are to do so. And if we're not willing to forgive, how can we expect the forgiveness of God? Jesus had told, told the sinners how to pray, or the disciples rather, how to pray. They had asked Him, teach us to pray. And He gave them the model prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And after having given Him that model prayer, which included a statement of forgiveness, Jesus indicated very, very strongly the purpose of that Lord's Prayer was to focus on the need for us to forgive those that we need to forgive. If we don't, and we let it continue to burn in our hearts, bitterness will result. And the root of this bitterness is evil. And it needs to be cut out. Let it be so. Like the woman from Tekoa had told David, so I suggest to all of us, Remember, we all will die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, of, but He devises means so that His banished ones are not expelled from Him. So let us always remember to do the same in every relationship that we have with everybody so that we might be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God without fail. Pray about that if you are dealing with that kind of unforgiveness in your heart and see that it was exactly what you needed to hear tonight. And if so, go to your brother or sister, go to your relative, go to your neighbor and take care of that which God is asking you to do now in Jesus' name. Until then, God bless you all. Grace and peace.